Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how you doing today, sir? Yeah, I'm doing well. It's a little bit rainy here, but rain is... It's gross here. ...part of God's blessing to the earth. Mm-hmm. And I'm my ungrateful self is just like, it's gross over here. So now I feel a kind of way about myself, but mm-hmm. it's okay. Well, fortunately, the Lord made our skin waterproof. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. There's nothing we got to do by way of intro or news. We can go right into the Come Follow Me. And before we do that, just want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So this week we are in Ether. Oh my goodness. It's 4.30. My phone has already switched over to night mode. I hate winter so much and daylight savings time. I'm already sad. So in Ether chapter 6 through 11, the uh, people of Jared have taken their journey. And over the course of the next few chapters, we're going to read about their dealings with each other. We're going to see a lot of uh, conflicts, some wars, some real Game of Thrones stuff. It just seems like every couple of verses we got somebody fighting their dad, their grandpa, their uncle, their cousin, somebody. Like there's a lot going on in terms of uh, conflicts. And we go through a lot of uh, a lot of generations as well. It's kind of hard to keep up with all the names and all the people and who's good, who's not. But uh, there are some there are definitely some lessons that we can be pulling pulling from these chapters. And uh, we'll do our best to keep the name straight as we as we talk about those things. So we'll go ahead and start right in chapter six. So at this part of the story, the party of Jared is uh, taking their journey to the new world. And uh, the way it's set up is they have constructed these barges and the Lord caused a furious wind is what he says to blow toward the promised land, blow the whole company toward the promised land. They're basically at the mercy of the sea here. Now, remember what the Lord told the brother of Jared back in chapter two. He said, ye shall be as a whale in the midst of the sea for the mountain waves shall dash upon you. You cannot cross this great deep save. I prepare you against the waves of the sea and the winds which have gone forth and the floods which shall come close quote. Now we go back to uh, chapter six. We learn in verse six quote, that they were many times buried in the depths of the sea because of the mountain waves which broke upon them, and also the great and terrible tempests which were caused by the fierceness of the wind, close quote. But we also learn that they were prepared against these things in verse 7, quote, when they were buried in the deep, there was no water that could hurt them, their vessels being tied like unto a dish, close quote. And then when they were encompassed by many waters, they cried unto the Lord and he brought them on top of the water. And the final thing worth mentioning here, I think, as I was comparing this journey to uh, the journey of the family of Lehi, is a note in verse 8 that the wind did never cease to blow towards the promised land while they were upon the waters. In verse 8, we also read that uh, they sang praises and thanked the Lord without ceasing. And then in verse 10, we read, quote, and thus they were driven forth and no monster of the sea could break them, neither whale that could mar them. So there's a lot happening here. Uh, but the primary thing I wanted to point out, I believe, was the fact that their 
that there was a couple of things at work that contributed to the success and the quality of their journey. And what I've noticed was it was their preparation, the strength of their barges and the quality of their barges, uh, their gratitude to the Lord and their willingness to call upon him, their reliance on the Lord. All of that stuff had a hand in, uh, in their success in the success of their journey and the quality of the journey. To liken this to us, I wanted to point out what we can learn from the faith, diligence, resilience, and gratitude of the Jaredites and how I see these attributes with many folks on the margins. For example, the phrase tight likened to a dish is said multiple times to describe the seaworthiness of these Jaredite barges almost to the point where it's annoying. Uh, after the third or fourth time, I'm like, I we get it. Everything is tight. God knows how to build a seaworthy vessel. You know, we learned that in Nephi and Noah already. So, you know, let's, let's move. But then we learn how treacherous the journey is and how much that tightness matters. We read that there were several times during their journey where big waves will toss them, break upon them and push them underwater, but that no water will harm them because their vessels are tight like unto a dish. When we get to that part of the story, four chapters later, the seeming redundancy begins to make some sense. I believe that the author was making an effort to let us know that the resilience of the barges was both an important detail and also not an accident. So our resilience must be very intentional, especially for folks on the, on the margins. Speaking for myself, racism, one of the most urgent issues in our nation and our church surrounds me and occasionally seems to beat upon me. And to survive in this nation and in this church, resilience is a requirement. And there are too many things, or there are just many things that we can do to build it. On the show, we've spoken about building our knowledge of the scriptures so that we can know them better than those who would use them against us because that's the water we can't let in. That's how we become tied like into a dish so that when people exercise bigotry in the name of Christ, it can't harm us because we've prepared and we've done the work like the brother of Jared did. The, the other big lesson here is uh, their faith. After, after they did all this preparation, we read in verse four that they set forth into the sea, commending themselves unto the Lord their God. Now to remind y'all, the Jaredites are getting into some crude vessels and just going to let the ocean have its way with them because according to God, this is how they're going to get to the new world. Not only that, but when they experienced the rough waters as the Lord said they would, they were able to cry unto the Lord for deliverance and they were delivered. We also read in verse nine that they praised the Lord often all day long. And when the night came, they did not cease to praise the Lord. Close quote. This is sandwiched between being told that they maintained a course towards the promised land the entire time. And also between a verse that tells us nothing could harm them, which leads me to believe that their attitude of praise and worship of their creator had something to do with their subsistence. Also, since such a detail is not present in the family of Lehi narrative, of their travel across the ocean, the fact that they're forgetting the Lord during the course of their travel is what caused them to tie Nephi up and to be driven back on the ocean, almost to the point of being swallowed up. I assume that gratitude throughout the journey and a remembrance of the Lord was encouraged by their struggles and uh, contributed to their preservation. And it can do the same for us. Yeah, I'm really curious about this praising the Lord. 
and whether there's room to praise the Lord when you don't feel like it. Because I think once you start praising the Lord, it might prompt you to think of all those things that you're grateful for that you wouldn't have otherwise thought of. Because when they're in there 344 days, it was probably tough. Notice they didn't just praise the Lord when they were done. They praised the, the Lord daily, day and night. They did not cease to praise the Lord. And I think that is part of what made sure that they weren't able to be broken in spirit. Absolutely. And I think homophobia and all of the, homophob- the homophobic comments or attitudes that people may have, those are like water, the waters of the ocean. They only cause a problem if they get in the boat. As long as they stay outside the boat, they can help support you and, and boost you up and you'll float on top of them. But only if they get into the boat, then you sink. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how I just have arranged my life. People can say whatever they want. They can do whatever they want. It's not going to bring me down. Or like you said in the spiritual, it's not going to turn me around. And notice what happens when they when they got there. It says in verse 12, they shed tears of joy before the Lord because of the multitude of his tender mercies over them. And they probably were joyful for everything all along, not just that they got to the promised land and they're joyful about that, but they were joyful about the whole journey. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, this barge experience is like a closet experience because they're coming along to a fuller land of promise. But while they're in the barge, they can't be as free as they need to be. They, they're they just waiting and hoping and anticipating this coming out. And it's literally a coming out thing. When they come out of the barges, it's a coming out story. And I think part of my my point is that the closet is a temporary experience, just like the barges were temporary. Right, and, okay. And there's ways of processing within the closet. There's still ways of rejoicing along the way, but I think part of the whole experience is knowing that it's temporary. Got you, got you, okay. That and makes I don't know sense. if I've ever told you this, but the most important weapon that they have against us is the closet. Have you ever heard me say that? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And that means the most important, one of the most important tools we have is to come out of the closet. Mm. It really changes everything. It changes what people think, all those awful things they thought about us. They just can't believe those anymore once they get to know us and once we're out. Mm. I also notice what happens here with the brother of Jared. Last week, we talked a little bit about to what extent the brother of Jared was on the margins of society, what his family was like. And we notice here that he does have sons and daughters in verse 15. We don't know the name of his wife. We don't, we even don't even know if he had a wife. I guess we can assume, but he also could have been by. We don't know any of these details, but I like what it says here in verse 17. And they were taught to walk humbly before the Lord. And if you look in the King James Version, you search the whole Bible for the for the phrase walk humbly, you find it only in Micah 6, 8. And in the Book of Mormon, you only find it here. And then later in verse 30, where it says that Orihah did walk humbly before the Lord. And the, the statement in Micah 6, 8 is very, very familiar to a lot of people. It's that it's the whole, what does God require of us? It's to do justice, to love mercy or loving kindness, however you translate chesed, and then to walk humbly 
with God, with your God. And like, that's really cool. I think this is a, a very interesting intertextual echo that encapsulates what righteousness is, our mm. duty to. And I love how Elder Rasband, is that who it was? Renland, Elder Renland. I was about to say, you gotta finish the sentence, um, like, I don't Elder know until Elder Renland you... <laughs> gave a talk about these words and our duty to God oh, yeah. and our duty to neighbor. And I think that's a really great talk. If I could go back for a moment to uh, these words earlier in Ether, because I do want to take a moment to spend a little bit more time on uh, you know the power that queer folks are able to take in these words. Something that I thought was really cool about this story was something that actually Sister Craig, I believe, pointed out last year in one of her talks. I was thinking specifically about how this contrasted from how this story contrasted from the story of Nephi and his journey on his ship to the New World. And I was thinking that the brother of Jared, Nephi, not just them, but Moses, they all had to cross a large body of water. But all of them did it in significantly different ways. Each one of them received personalized direction that was tailored to them and their situations. The faith of those men proved Nephi's words that the Lord prepares a way for people to be obedient to him and not necessarily the way. I think we could definitely extend this to marginalized folks who do not have the luxury of following prescribed routes to following the gospel or to salvation in general. You talked last week or perhaps the week before about how the plan that was originally proposed to the brother of Jared by God himself just didn't work for him. And he was like, okay, let me make a couple of tweaks here. Let me come back to you with this other plan and let me know if this is going to work for you. It's a further testimony to me just seeing yet another way that somebody or a group of people have crossed the waters that there is a way that works, that can work for everybody. And it may not necessarily be the traditionally prescribed way for uh, people to follow a commandment. Or maybe the Lord doesn't care as much about how we follow the commandment as long as we do. And he's open to a collaboration on the methods of how we accomplish that goal. Does that make sense? It does make sense. So I just liked how, you know, we have yet another example of a group of people doing a pretty large, embarking on a pretty large exodus. And the Lord basically allowing all of them to do it in different ways. I thought that was really special. Anything else for Ether chapter six? No, not for chapter six. I just wanted to bring out here what we can perhaps learn about allyship from uh, the King Shul. Now, uh, at this point in the story, a king named Shul had uh, secured his kingdom and prophets have risen up to basically tell folks that their sins are going to lead to destruction. So predictably, people didn't like that and reviled against them. And uh, Shul, however, he decided he was going to protect the prophets from what we see in verse uh, 24, executing judgment against those who did revile against the prophets and giving power to the prophets to basically go where they want. I think allies can take some cues from Shul here because things like white supremacy, straight supremacy, patriarchy, these are, these are idols, and they are curses on us that are going to destroy us if we don't repent, as is written in verse 24. Shul made sure that the voices of the prophets were both heard and taken seriously. The word revile means to basically speak abusively towards or about, and Shul wasn't even going to allow that much. Shul wasn't going to let a finger 
be laid on these folks, but he also wasn't going to let a negative word or an abusive word be spoken to or about these prophets. So he didn't just make sure that they were protected physically. He made sure that they were actually taken seriously. He, he wouldn't even let people talk disrespectful to them. So when so so then we should probably use whatever power that we have to uh, protect, uplift and make people take seriously the voices of those doing the work of countering bigotry in whatever form it might take, whether that's, you know, racism, whether that's homophobia, whether that's uh, patriarchy. I feel like we folks who have privilege have an obligation to do as Shul did and make sure that when people who actually talk about anti-bigotry, whether those are, you know, the prophets themselves or the prophets among those different marginalized groups, uh, we lend our power to them so that they can be taken seriously and so that, uh, well, we see the results of Shul's actions later in verses uh, 26 and 27. We learned that by this cause, the people were brought to repentance. So Shul's allyship actually led to the repentance of his people. And because the people did repent of their iniquities and idolatries, the Lord did spare them and they began to prosper again in the land. If we are able to use whatever influence that we have to lift voices up and to make sure that the people who are speaking to the causes of LGBTQs, people of color and women, we make sure those voices are heard, we're actually able to remove whatever curses on our land might be coming. We're actually able to advance as a society. Our people are actually going to be better. The Lord will actually spare us and we're going to be able to move forward as, move forward as a people. Yeah, I want to bring out this curse language that's in verse 23. So, because of their wickedness, there was a curse upon the land. And then in uh, verse 26, they begin to prosper again in the land when they repent. And there's more details about this type of cursing in chapter 9. I'm just going to go to this parallel. Chapter 9, verses 28 and 29 where the prophets cry repentance and that they should repent and prepare the way of the Lord or there should come a per come a curse upon the face of the land yea even there should be a great famine in which they should be destroyed if they did not repent and that is really interesting because this reminds me of the second paragraph of the Shema which is in Deuteronomy chapter 11 and in this paragraph which faithful Jews recite twice a day it talks about how the Lord will bless the people of Israel if they keep the commandments, that God will send rain and they'll have an abundance of crops. But then if they don't keep the commandments, God will take the rain away and there will be a famine, which is another more biblical evidence about God afflicting the comfortable, but we're not going to get into that again. <laughs> Although I'm going to keep talking about this every week a little bit. But the reason I'm bringing this up is that the whole people suffer when there's wickedness and oppression amongst amongst them. So a lot of people think, oh, the LGBTs, they just want something special for them. They want to, but the reality is no one can be fully themselves if LGBTs can't be fully themselves. Mm. A lot of people think we're doing it just for us and we're being selfish, but no, like this, we're all cursed if we don't do justice. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing with patriarchy. Patriarchy sets all of us back. It does. Like men aren't allowed to do what they would need to do to thrive because of tight and rigid gender roles, 
because of all these things that end up being dangerous for men. For example, this idea that men are providers and protectors means that men get sent off into wars at a disproportionate rate. I'm not saying it's at all equivalent to what women experience, but patriarchy is bad for men too. And we should all lift up everyone. Like if everyone gets lifted up, then we all get lifted up. That's kind of, what am I trying to say? If the if the lowest of us in privilege get lifted up, we're all better off. Mm-hmm. We're all better off as a society because we're not, and and part of it is is like a the body analogy, the body of Christ. Like if I stub my toe, I don't look at my toe and say, "Well, whoops, too bad for you." I mean, I've got I'm okay, but my you, toe, you're not okay. No, if I hurt my toe, my whole body hurts, and that's what I the piece that people miss when they look at the requests and demands of marginalized people. They think that it somehow competes with their rights or their privileges. Or No, we're actually all better off. Mm-hmm. And this notion of cursing the whole people for the injustice among them ties right into that. I think that's all I had for chapter 7. What you want to say about 8? So let's turn to chapter 8 and talk about the daughter of Jared. Now this is a different Jared. This is a, the wicked Jared. And there's this conspiracy that the daughter of Jared has to put her father, Jared, on the throne, essentially attacking Jared's father, her own grandfather. And let's talk about this, because we have very few stories of women in the Book of Mormon. And in this case, it looks like, from what we can tell, the daughter of Jared might be the only one who is recorded as reading. I don't know to what extent we can assume all of the women in the Book of Mormon were literate, but that reminds me of two very interesting articles that I'm going to bring up. One is by Lynn Anderson in Dialogue, and it's called Toward a Feminist Interpretation of Latter-day Scriptures. She says that whereas the Bible directly quotes many, many women, only three individual Book of Mormon women are quoted directly. There's Sariah, there's Lomoni's queen, and then... King Jared's daughter here. And then one group of women, the daughters of Ishmael. And she also says something very interesting. By she, I mean Anderson, not the daughter of (laughs) Jared. Anderson says, here's what's important. It's that women's infrequent appearances in Latter-day Sacred Narrative serve only to facilitate the telling of male stories. To paraphrase Judith Plasco, women in these male texts are not subjects or molders of their own experiences, but objects of male purposes, designs, and desires. They may be vividly characterized, but their presence does not negate their silence. If they are central to the plot, the plots are not about them. And I think this is really interesting, how it's difficult for me, especially me as a man, to navigate the stories about women in the scriptures because I'd love to have more of the stories of women, but here we have a woman, and I'm not sure what to do with this. Although I wanna push back against this idea, and this is due to patriarchy, that all women are virtuous and sweet and motherly, because the reality of the world is women and men are equally capable of everything, equally capable of good things and equally capable of bad things. And that's just the fact that we need to admit if we truly believe in the equality of genders, right? So here we have a case of a woman who uses her positionality as a force for evil. 
I don't have any answers about what to do with this. So I also want to look at this article by um, by Kevin and Shauna Christensen called Feminism Among the Nephites. And in this, there's an, a little bit of an extended conversation about the daughter of Jared quoting Hugh Nibley about the fact that there seems to be a number of archetypes and very similar stories in the ancient world of a beautiful woman using that to dance to get some favor that involves killing someone else. I know the, the story best in, of course, the beheading of John the Baptist, but it, there seems to be other parallels in the ancient world as well. And I think it's these archetypes that resonate in some way with the reader and why Moroni chose to include this. I'm not sure. And I think that's part of the thing about studying the scriptures is to be humble enough to say, we don't know all the answers. And I'm not sure exactly what to do with this. I've heard different things said about this, and I'm not entirely sure how much I believe them. But I basically heard stories like this and stories like uh, the beheading of John used to tell men to mind how they respond to their sexual impulses, basically. Like they say things like, look how easily these men were able to be controlled by their sexual impulses to the point where they were going to kill somebody. And apparently these women were aware of that. They was, it was baked into the daughter of Jared's plan. But again, I'm not sure how much we're supposed to say about that or how much we're supposed to read into that or even if that was necessarily the purpose. I feel like there's more to be gained from it than simply women rep weaponizing their sexuality for evil purposes. I think the, the one thing that I can say semi-confidently is that we learn not to use every story in the scriptures to get a cutesy moral lesson. Because you could try to turn this into a lesson about modesty. You could try to turn this into a lesson about men not being seduced by women. You could turn this into a lesson about how one woman has a lot of power. And if, if, she, if one woman can do all this evil, then also one woman can do a whole bunch of good. There's a lot of cutesy lessons that you could make out of these. And I think to some degree, they, they speak at some truth. Because clearly, a righteous woman or a righteous person of any gender can make a world of difference. That's true. But if we boil down the complexity of this narrative to just one little tagline or a hashtag and say, like, modesty, I think we really cheapen our experience of the text. And we should be able to sit with the complexity and not try to make it into, oh, here's this little mini lesson that I can dish out to the seminary class or something like that. I don't know if that's fair. Do you think that's fair? I would just have to ask, what is, why, why is that story here then? Like, I mean, yeah, we don't need a cutesy lesson from it. And I'm not, <laughs> I'm not saying that is what we're supposed to do, but I'm saying that the fact that this story in that detail was included in the record, that tells me it has a purpose here. What are we supposed to learn from it if it's not going, like... It doesn't have to be a lesson on modesty. It doesn't have to be a it doesn't have to be a lesson on how sexuality can be weaponized against people. It could. It doesn't have to be a lesson about uh, necessarily political intrigue and how that takes forms. It could just be a lesson about how people have used their own histories mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. to learn about evil acts by which to gain power. I don't know, but the fact that that detail is in here tells me that there is a purpose for it. I think Moroni's point 
in keeping all all these several chapters of intrigue and and plot twist and all i think he's just talking he's giving this as supporting evidence in his larger pattern of when people are righteous then they prosper but when there's wickedness they turn against each other and you'll notice that when people are wicked you can't even trust them to be completely on one side because the wicked people turn against each other and they betray each other mm -hmm. but and then this, this gets back to the temptations that the the lust for power and the greed for dominion dominating others that's seductive in every generation right it, literally here in, in every generation it seems we have one of these plots yeah and and i think moroni explicitly later on in this text says yes you in the future you need to watch for secret combinations you need to be very clear about how you construct your society I don't know if that's a cutesy lesson or if that's I don't think something it's a, I don't think slightly, it's a cutesy lesson. Something slightly better than cutesy. I don't think it's a cutesy lesson personally, but you know, my question is still going to be first of all, the fact that a woman is mentioned in the text and that we see her words being used. I just feel like there's more there for us to gain because one a woman is mentioned, also quoted, and has a significant role in the beginning of so many conflicts that occur throughout the rest of the book of ether and i just i just want to believe that there is more to be gained here because of the detail that we have about her and also about what she does specifically to set all this secret combination in motion people among our listeners may have thoughts that they can contribute but um you know i'm still sitting with that simply because this is such a rare moment and I want to believe that there's something mm -hmm. more to be gathered from it. Well, one other thing to gather, and I think you started to talk about this, was the way she used the scriptures, the records, because yeah. she clearly knew them. And that also speaks to the danger of people who know the scriptures very well. And I, I hate to hate on my own tribe of scholars of the scriptures, but just because people know the scriptures well doesn't mean they're righteous. In fact, some of the people who have damaged LGBTs the most know the scriptures well, mm. or knew them well. McConkie knew the scriptures well. Yep. Packer knew the scriptures well. I mean, just because you know the scriptures doesn't mean you get them. Because not only do you have to know the content, you also have to understand the emphasis, like where is the priority in scriptures? You have to understand the trajectory of scriptures, one that's liberatory, and you see an ever-expanding circle of inclusion throughout the scriptures. If you don't notice these large patterns, see, that's why I love, love about Moroni. He's taking through all of these intrigues so quickly so that we can see these large patterns. But yes, people can use the scriptures in a very destructive manner, so don't be fooled by someone just because they can quote the scriptures because even satan can quote the scriptures right in, yep. in matthew yep. chapter 4 and luke chapter 4 we've got the temptation where jesus then responds to that with better scriptures mm. and that's i think what we need to do is respond to the scriptures people use against us with better scriptures mm. we can do this with the scripture all are like unto God, that solves so many problems mm -hmm. if people would actually take that to heart. It's mm. a great point. Thank you for bringing that up, Derek. As you said many times on the show, knowing the scriptures better than those who would use them to oppress us. Now, I don't know if this is, this is a fair 
I might, I don't know. I might get in trouble for saying this. But I think what this does it, is it testifies to the few powers that women have in a patriarchal society. That the, the few powers that women have is to exploit the whole sexual situation. So I'm not excusing what she did, but I'm explaining that it, look at what patriarchy does. Mm-hmm. In limiting the options for women, and I don't, I don't know how to process that other than just kind of sit with it and think about that. And that's okay. That is okay. I have just one thing that's worth mentioning because it's a theme that has been talked about in the initial exodus for uh, the people of for the party of the brother of Jared. I just wanted to bring out that we've already gone through several several kings. Uh, since we have arrived in the new world, since we've gotten to chapter 10. And now we're at a king named Shez. And I just wanted to point out, this is in verse 2. came to pass that Shez did remember the destruction of his fathers, and he did build up a righteous kingdom, for he remembered what the Lord had done in bringing Jared and his brother across the deep. And he did walk in the ways of the Lord, and he begat sons and daughters." Something that hasn't been done so explicitly, or at least this succinctly, is that we have somebody's ability to maintain their walk in the ways of the Lord tied directly to their ability to remember the suffering of their ancestors and also remember the goodness of the Lord to their ancestors. These are two big men. These are two big motivators for me in a lot of what I do is the uh, memory of my both my physical and my spiritual ancestors and also the memory of what the Lord has done for my people. I believe in what he's done for me personally. It's a big reason why I journal and it's a big reason why I'm a huge advocate of family history even though there's only so much I can do on uh, you know on the black side of my family. I believe that a big part of what I do is in essence to honor both the sacrifices and the sufferings of my ancestors and also the uh, blessings that the Lord has given to me. I think we've talked about it on the show before, but I did that exercise one time of trying to determine my why. It's that exercise where you ask somebody why they want to do something or why they want something. And then when they say why, you ask why they want that thing, why they want that thing. I think the last time I went through this exercise was um, when I read through, when I reread the story of John sending his disciples after Jesus. And when Jesus says, what seek ye, you know, his disciples basically ask, where do y'all dwell? Where, where, where dwellest thou? And then I did this Ignatian exercise where I imagined myself in that position and Jesus just kept asking me why. Like, why do you want to know where I live? Why do you want to follow me? And eventually we got to what is outlined in these, in this verse, in chapter 10, verse two. Ultimately, what I want to do is honor both my spiritual ancestry and my physical ancestry and honor the blessings that the Lord has given me personally and has given my ancestors. Basically the suffering and the sacrifice of the people that came before me and the goodness of the Lord to those who came before me. That is why I want to be a disciple of Christ is I want to honor those things and I want to honor, you know, I want to honor God. I feel like a lot of what I have is because of those blessings that the Lord has given them, the blessings he's given me and the sacrifice of the people that have preceded me. And I just haven't seen that 
put so succinctly in scripture as I have in Ether chapter 10, verse 2, where somebody's ability and desire to walk in the right in the right ways of the Lord are tied directly to their ability to remember the destruction and the sacrifice, the suffering of their ancestors, as well as the Lord's goodness to those same people. And I just wanted to bring that out. Yes, that is important. And having a reflective and thoughtful approach to why we do what we do is really important for progress. Definitely. Because sometimes we'll realize there's no good reason for doing the thing that we've been doing. (laughs) That's really sad. And I think about this so often with the exclusion of LGBTs. There's no good reason for that. It's just completely arbitrary, completely artificial. And when people try to say their reasons why, those aren't even the real reasons why. Those are external excuses that they're pasting over some underlying other reason. It's stuff that they say to make themselves feel better. And you know, you don't really believe that they believe it. Like the most recent time I've pressed somebody about this stuff, I could tell she didn't really believe what she was saying all that much because I could tell I was hearing things that had been repeated to her with regard to this stuff. Mm -hmm. I wasn't sure she really believed it. I don't think she really believed it. And that's just not a good place to be coming from when it comes to the oppression of whole human beings. Like to the point where the reasons that you give for their oppression or justifying their oppression are things that you don't even believe yourself. And that speaks to the fact that these oppressions are really unnatural. Mm -hmm. And they have to take work and effort to maintain them. People have to work so hard to be homophobic, actually. I don't know if that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. But homophobia wouldn't even last 10 seconds if people put a little thought into it. Mm -hmm. It is just so obvious. Absolutely. Anything else in uh, chapter 10 or 11 that you want to bring out? I want to talk a little bit about this, the phrasing in 10 verse 9 about Morianton gathered together an army of outcasts. All right. I think that's pretty cool, an army of outcasts. And they were able to do some great things. And then Morianton became king and eased the burden of his people. Now, it turns out that Morianton didn't, wasn't completely good. He ended up having some whoredoms. Interesting wording, by the way, and I don't know if anybody wants to like comment on this. I just find the sentence very interesting that it says he did do justice unto the people, but not unto himself because of his many whoredoms. That is just such a really interesting sentence to me. The punchline of this verse is that he was cut off from the presence of the Lord, and that's just super unfortunate and also a little confusing for me to read. I've thought about this, and people talk about selfishness as though it's a bad thing. But this brings out the fact that he wasn't fully selfish. He wasn't fully self-interested. People say, well, oh, well, he's engaging all these in whoredoms because of his selfish interests. But it turns out that that isn't dealing justly with himself. I'm still lost, man, just thinking about this, just thinking about this whole situation. Like I said, I've been sitting with it for a while. I hear what you're saying now, but I'm still struggling to relate it to uh, Morianton. So there's this Christian theologian named John Piper, and I do not at all endorse him for for a number of reasons. But he did make this very interesting point about selfishness and hedonism. And he said that if you are self-interested, interested in your own happiness and pleasure, you will follow God. It's an interesting point. I think I kind of inserted that thought in the middle of something you were expressing with uh, regard oh, to Morianton taking the outcasts Uh, yes the army of outcasts yes sir so maybe that's what i should call my group instead of bitter fruits (laughs) i should call it 
I yeah, didn't I'm know no. Bitter Fruits was an option. Goodness. <laughs> <laughs> it was going to be a, a group of queer people who are upset with the way things are. It would be Bitter Fruits. <laughs> that's actually that's actually kind of funny. <laughs> um, but maybe I should call it Army of Outcasts. Okay. I like both, actually. I, I like Bitter Fruits a little more. Because <laughs> I think that's very on brand for you, Derek. But, you know, that's neither here nor there. And you try there. to tell me that I'm not funny. I never tell you that you're not funny. I say you're funny all the time. I just say your jokes, not as much. You're not funny when you try to be funny. Oh, okay. Army of Outcasts, anything else in this chapter? Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about these secret combinations, and we've got all these intrigues where people have secret conspiracies. And if you look at the end of chapter 10, there's verse 33, and... And they administered oaths after the manner of the ancients and sought again to destroy the kingdom. Here's one thing that I want to do, if I'm bold enough, in, in gospel doctrine class, is ask people, ask the class, and write them on the chalkboard, what are some of the most manipulative words that people use culturally or, or doctrinally in the church? And I think one of the most manipulative words is the word covenant. No, I love the word covenant. It's a biblical word. It's a great word. I love my covenants. I think we should keep our covenants. Uh-huh. But it gets used in a very interesting way. And here's an example of where keeping the covenant is wrong. If you made the wrong covenant to begin with, if you made a covenant that was not appropriate, not only you may you break that covenant, but you must break that covenant. I think you are obligated to break a covenant that is harmful. And people might not like saying that, but I think the concept of covenant is used against LGBTQ people in the church. Because it's like, you made a covenant in baptism. You made a covenant to fulfill the law of chastity. You made a covenant to do this. You made a covenant to do that. It's spiritually abusive is what it is. And covenant is, when they're using that, they're being manipulative. And they're oppressing us with a smile. So we have to be very careful how we use the language of covenant of, is this bringing the individual and the community wholeness? Because that's really what the covenant is all about. And we, we see this a lot, it's even especially in the community of LGBT people in the church who don't like themselves. They use the phrase, well, I'm doing this to keep my covenants. I'm like, you need to have some better theology. If you think that that's what your covenant is, my point is not, I don't want everyone to be a covenant breaker, but my point is, if you've made a covenant that actually isn't right or isn't complete, you shouldn't keep yourself bound to it just because you promised it a long time ago with less knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. So these people made covenants to do something evil, made covenants that were not geared towards wholeness and justice. And so I think they not only may break those covenants, but they must break them once they realize they're wrong. Got you. In terms of these secret combinations. So before we move on to some housekeeping items, just want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes 
questions or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Derek, where can folks find us? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and Parlor. <laughs> is that how you parlay. say it? I thought it was parlay. It's parlay, isn't it? Yes, but I like making fun of them, calling it parlor, but okay. it's parlay. I bet a lot of them pronounce it parlor. <laughs> I, bet of them don't, I bet a lot of them don't know the etymology of that word and why it people is. are... Because I think it's named after this free speech business. Yeah, it's... But you the, can't the have word, free speech without free porn. What? <laughs> no, because if you say you can say whatever you want, then you have to let porn in. Oh, that's great. Parlay is just one more avenue for people to get their porn. You know, I just found out you could find porn on Twitter. So now I got to delete Twitter on my phone. Uh Uh-oh. They're getting really creative out here. And Parlay is just the most recent freaking example of this mess. But yeah, congratulations to those folks who now have a platform where you can say all the messed up stuff you want. So, events. Do you want to talk about that day of remembrance, Derek? Yes, it's the... um So the United American Indians of New England every year on Thanksgiving Day host a National Day of Mourning event where there's a march and then there's a series of speeches by indigenous people talking about both the past and the present and the future and all sorts of what needs to be done, what's been done. And we've gotten this sanitized view of the Thanksgiving narrative of the uh, the Wampanoag and the Pilgrims all got together and held hands at the Thanksgiving table. Which, let me just go back up and say, this after the apparent election of Joe Biden, we've got all these people coming out saying, now it's time for us to hold hands with the bigots. If y'all don't get out of here with it. Mm. And we need to all understand each other, and we need to just sit at the table and really heal the polarization. So the problem people think is, they, they think polarization is the problem. Polarization isn't because of a symmetry of two sides not liking each other. One group of people went way far off, and that's the cause of the polarization. And the only way to fix it is to bring them back into moral inclusion. And so when we say we've got to both understand each other, no, we don't. I mean, we already st- understand. I think it's there's need to be more learning and more facts on the other side. And people will say, well, Derek, you're just one-sided and part of the polarization. Well, can you think of anyone who, who, who said... I was so proud that I held hands with the Nazis and tried to understood them and I listened to them. No okay. one has said that. And no after the that. World War II, there was an intense denazification program mm-hmm. to root out the ideologies and to expose them and to not give them any air and to really repair the damage to make sure that the people who had the Nazi ideology were not in any position of influence anymore. And that's, that's the moment we're in right now after Joe Biden's election. I think. Okay. Do we know yet if this event is going to be able to be streamed? Like those who are local are going to be able to go to the event, but will this event be able to be streamed? Do we know anything yet? Oh, yeah. This whole thing, this whole detour was talking about this National Day of Mourning event. Yeah. So it will be, at least parts of it will be streamed. And I may go in person in Plymouth if it's safe to do so. But people should know about this and definitely uplift the voices and experience of the indigenous peoples whenever we talk about Thanksgiving. All right. If that uh, link, if we're able to find some more details about that, we will put that in the show notes. We'll at least put the website in or the event URL in our notes so that you guys can at least find more details on the event as we uh, get further updated on it. Just by way of special thanks, 
want to put out a thank you to our friends Tamara Kemsley for editing the show, David Doyle for editing our transcripts, and also Eden Wynn for handling our social media and otherwise being a boss. Thank you all. Is there anything else we got to put out there, Derek? Nope, that's it. All right. Then thank you guys all for listening till we meet again next week. Later, everyone.